forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah. I am so pleased to be talking to our longtime pal, Steven Skaya. Hi. Bonjour. Bonjour, Ben. Comment ça va? Ça va bien? Are you oui? in Canada right now? Yes, I am. I am in Canada. <laughs> uh, Stephen, you are the uh, co-EP, co co-creator of Blood and Treasure. True story. Running right now, uh, as we speak on... Tuesday uh, nights, 10 o'clock. Nice. Uh, it's a good show. It's really a lot of fun. Um, is this, Remind me, I'm sorry I don't know this. Is this your first um, show of your own? Yes, it is. That's awesome. Congrats. Thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. I mean, when when CBS came to us with the idea of wanting to do a treasure on our show, you know, Fetterman and I, uh, we have made a lot of treasure on our shows in the past, written a lot, yeah, but not many have been picked up. Uh, in <laughs> fact, none of them have. Um, but this one was different um, because we found an engine that worked really well, which was the true story that uh, ISIS was funding their terrorist activities through blood antiquities. And yeah. we sort of took that little bit of true, uh, true crime and ran with it. And CBS had wanted a really fun, giant, humongous summer action <laughs> show. And so, uh, you know, listen, there's a lot of truth in blood and treasure, but it's a lot of fun. But it's about treasure the same way like Charlie's Angels is about police. <laughs> it's also, it's funny, like having known you now for at least a decade, it feels like <laughs> the most you show that there could be on television. <laughs> yeah, a friend of ours was like, you're doing a treasure show. How many episodes before you get to the Nazis? And I'm like, brother, it's like page two. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. So yeah. what what do you think? It was about, you know, this script, this pitch that made it go forward where maybe similar sort of treasure hunting adventure shows hadn't in the past. Well, listen, I, I do I do think it was the true crime hmm. ISIS connection that gave it real stakes because uh the thing about art is it's subjective and it's not um it's not the kind of thing where it gives you a chugging engine for story. Right. And the reason something like Raiders of the Lost Ark works so well is because it's about treasure, but that thing is a, also a weapon of mass destruction. So hmm. we needed something modern because you can't always use the Ark of the Covenant. And the idea that ISIS was stealing true treasures and selling them to fund terrorism just made it feel now and modern yeah. and real. Um, and it let it, it gave us the backbone, uh, of a story that really let us set off on this crazy adventure that is really 80% fun and, um, explosions and 20%, uh, cultural heritage and identity. Yeah. Well, and, and you are, you, you, you all really, your whole staff, they're so good at character too. Uh, and I'm curious about when it came time to write this pilot populating the world like having the idea is one thing right but then yeah how do you start to find the right people that you want to play with in this fun world it's it would the the development process was interesting because it started originally as a typical cbs uh sort of like treasure of the week procedural mm -hmm. and they rolled us over from that into a summer series when they realized 
it would work better as a serial adventure mm-hmm. with one big story. And then they would give us the ability to shoot all 13 episodes at once, travel the world, and complete one big giant story like a summer novel. And so the early version of it always had a Danny and always had a Lexi because mm-hmm. we always, Matt and I are kind of drawn to the story of not will they or won't they, but, but the history they have together. So it's not a story about two strangers meeting yeah. and falling in love. It's about two people who used to be together and can't be together because of the history they share. But, you know, wink, wink, will they get back together again? There's still a lot of chemistry <laughs> there. And so, so what's great about that sort of already cooked into the show is everybody in the show that knows one or the other can have you on that relationship. And yeah. so we always knew we wanted Danny to have a best friend who did not like Lexi because all he'd heard was Danny's version of the story of the relationship. And to us, that was really fun when we knew we wanted to be in Rome. We kind of had the conversation about like, well, why don't we make that guy like a priest who works at the Vatican? <laughs> and what's great about that character, Father Chuck, is Father Chuck isn't I've grown Catholic, I think there was a lot of times that you see Catholic priests on TV and in movies, and they're always the bad guy. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to do a story where he really is just sort of Danny's buddy. And the, the, the thing he does as a priest is real and legit, and he's a good priest, but that's not the thing... He's not the kind of priest that tells you what you can't do. He's the kind of priest that tries to make your life better. Mm-hmm. And so he's, it's the perfect thing for Danny's best friend who as sort of like in shows like this, you'd have the put upon buddy, right. but here he's a put upon buddy who happens to work at the Vatican and knows the, the Pope. And <laughs> it's, re- it's really fun because normally that guy is wagging his fingers at you, but he's kind of into the adventure too. And yeah. let's be honest. Mark Gagliardi is the best. Oh my God. And so once Gags took on the role of Chuck, it just became this whole other thing where the, the, the guy just like, you just want to hang out with Father Chuck all the time. <laughs> As you want to hang out with Gagliardi all the time. Exactly. Um, and, and I do love that dynamic. Like there's so much humanity and complicated relationships built into this show, which also has so much candy to it. What are the, in the writer's room, what's, what are the biggest challenges? I I will say the the thing that we are always striving to do is we want the show to be fun, but we don't want the show to be dumb. Mm -hmm. And it's a fine line um, between fun and dumb and slick and too slick. And we want to be right on the razor's edge of all of that stuff where the relationship's feel real, the situations can be heightened and a little bit larger than life, but the, the, the characters should be real because they should feel like you should be able to watch the show and have a favorite. And also you should be able to watch the show and know that this is, this is exactly what this character would do in this situation. And so while the characters start as archetypes, they very quickly become more complicated than you think they are. So you think Lexi is the, Lexi's the thief who you can't trust. And Danny is the boy scout who doesn't do anything wrong. But then as you get into the season, you realize as we start to pull back the curtain on each of them as characters, you realize why Lexi's the way she is and why Danny's the way he is. Mm-hmm. And it, it really is fun because you have all of these people who you think are one thing and then they become something else by the end of the season. And that allows us to have lots of twists and turns for characters too. Yeah. So there's characters that you guys have met because we're on episode four at this point or five mm-hmm. that you're watching the show. 
that you think one thing about them, but mm, everyone's got a, an interesting secret. And That's there's great. a lot of twists and turns coming. And sometimes it's as simple as someone like Shaw, who presents as a scoundrel, but you love Shaw. And so you really <laughs> want Shaw to be part of the team. <laughs> and can he get over his own Shawness to be an effective <laughs> member of the team and join the treasure squad or not? And then there's other bigger surprises that maybe you hopefully won't see coming until the very end. That's great. And I th- feel like that's, you know, why we love TV. That's why we wanted to write TV is you get to live with these characters and reveal layers to them and unfold these relationships in this way. Absolutely. Um, is the treasure hunting aspect, does that pose specific uh, story challenges? The treasure hunting aspect of it is fun because we had a room full of history nerds <laughs> and we have a room full of TV nerds and a room full of people who grew up on Spielberg and Lucas movies. And we were all pushing in the right direction. But the thing we all agreed on that made the treasure special was the rule was that we couldn't make up a treasure. Oh, cool. It had to be something real or based in reality. And so even the, the tomb of Antony and Cleopatra is a real treasure that has not been found. And we were re- constantly reading articles because there is a, an archaeologist who's getting very close, and we were terrified they, were, <laughs> they would find it before the show premiered. That's but awesome. what it does is it gives you a real sense of rooting in history because to us, the best stories are stories that have that, that shred of truth to them. Yeah. And so everything feels a little bit real. And so the rule was, just like how in Indiana Jones – the Ark of the Covenant's a real thing that you could find someday. The, you know, the tomb of Antony and Cleopatra and the treasures from week to week are real things. There's a couple spots where we weren't allowed to, we were a little too close to reality. So there's, um, we do a whole episode that is based on the, the Gardner Museum heist in Boston. Yeah. But for legal reasons, we were not allowed to say that. <laughs> but we, we do feel like we stuck to the story of that heist yeah. and we made it part of our mythology and if you watch the show and you have any sort of passing knowledge of art heists and treasure you watch that and you nod and you're like oh they they're talking about the gardener heist they're not allowed to say that <laughs> instead they're talking about the Fensgate heist which uh which is as close as we could get uh and named after one of the uh the dorms at emerson oh, in boston so funny and so that was the only we, we went through probably a dozen names of museums in Boston. And turns out there's a lot of them. Yeah. And so Fensgate was the only name that cleared. <laughs> That's great. What episode is that? I can't wait to That's, see. That is episode eight. That, awesome. There's actually an entire episode where we go back to Boston. And it's written by um, Kevin Chesley and Brian Shukoff, Emerson College graduates. Uh, nice. And, uh, and there's uh, some really great guest stars in there. Uh, it's one of our best episodes because it also really lets you learn about Danny and you learn about why he's the guy he is and you realize he's not just a goody-goody. There's a whole backstory about him that you never knew and it really it really opens up the world for the second half of the season. Oh, that's great. I can't wait. Um, let's talk for a second about inspirations for this i mean we've we've talked about spielberg we talked about raiders um did you look at other shows or movies to to sort of land on a tone for this you know tone can be such a difficult thing to convey both on the page and even in production uh what were the conversations around tone 
I think that the 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 movies that we were always drawn to and the TV shows we were always drawn to were the things we grew up loving as kids. Mm-hmm. And Matt and I talked a lot about how we feel like nobody watches TV, no, or even me, no one consumes media together anymore. Everyone sits in their corner of the room with an iPad or a TV or a phone, and no one sits around the TV like we used to when we were kids watching the game. And to us, there's a lot of that DNA in our show where we wanted to build something that you could, that mom, dad, kids, everyone could be into enough to want to watch it together. Mm -hmm. And so we are drawing heavily from our love of the Stephen J. Cannell shows of the 80s. Great. Um, But also not just Raiders, but, you know, we love Romancing the Stone for the the characters Mm -hmm. and the the give and play, the give and take and the play between them. Mm -hmm. There's also... A heavy dose of Mission Impossible because we love uh, what we like to call competence porn in the room, which is <laughs> smart people doing smart things in a clever way. Yeah, and we great. also love the the playfulness of the Ocean's movies too, where they had twists and turns you weren't necessarily expecting, but they're all based on the characters you loved and had have been watching in you know over three different movies. Mm-hmm. And so I think that those are probably the things we draw on the most. Um, and it's the writers we had in the room were so good. specifically. I mean, like, I mean, come on, Javi is, is one of the best there is at that sort of thing. Yeah. And we had a lot of fun in the room watching each other as they would pitch action scenes to the room. It was kind of like, it was always fun watching the show right there in that moment because there'd yeah. be sometimes where some of our writers would pitch something in the, in the room. And you, you know how it is in a writer's room where the idea is is baked and cooked and then it changes over the course of months and months and months but there is literally lines of dialogue that lived to this day that were said in that moment when it was pitched they were like that is perfect that's going in the show <laughs> and it still is that's really cool that's and it sounds like it was a a good room and like the uh, democratic room and and you guys ran it well too um and i think the show shows all of that um Congrats again on it. It's it's a lot of fun. I hope people Thank are watching. Um, it is on right now on CBS. Tuesday nights, 10 o'clock CBS. Uh, you can also catch it on Amazon Prime. Okay. Uh, a couple days after it airs, it goes and lives on Amazon Prime forever for your binging pleasure. <laughs> Fantastic. Congrats, Stephen. Thanks for talking. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is it. What I'm going to do is have you introduce yourselves on the microphone so the listener knows what your voice sounds like. And Bridget, let's start with you. Okay. Um, I'm Bridget Hales. And should I just say yeah, tell what us I've... Where, where we may have seen your name on the television. Um, well, you may have seen my name on 11-22-63 on Hulu. Then for a bunch of years on Once Upon a Time on ABC. And then... At some undisclosed point <laughs> in the future, on Amazing Stories for Apple. Oh, sure. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. Great. Eventually. John? Uh, I'm John Himes. Uh, I am uh, essentially a writer via directing. Yeah. So, um, this, it, but I found that TV or long form is the medium I'm really uh, excited to be involved in and have spent the last several years working my way there um essentially through episodic directing i mean i started out in feet well i started out in documentaries worked my way to features writing directing and uh and then when i kind of 
looked at the landscape, decided I really wanted to get involved in the in the long form and creating. So most recently, I uh, created Black Summer for uh, Netflix, and uh, and now I'm in the process of uh, you know getting a couple more seasons of that going and, and and some other shows with that company, which is which is exciting. Nice. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But as a as a director, I've worked. I think I've learned a lot from the writers that I worked with as a director. You know, so that was that's really kind of how my path has been. And if you know, we'll we'll get into this. But and when I emailed you, I said I like devoured Black Summer. It was oh, so good. it's such a fun but dark show. Like and it goes yeah. down so easy, and it feels like the sort of thing that a director writer had to write. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it felt like someone who understood the constraints of television and got to make the show within those parameters. Yeah. Uh, in in such a fascinating way, but oh, again, cool. we'll get into it. Uh, Great. But I do recommend it to people. It, it, it's, it's a really good show. Uh, Jay, uh, hi, I'm Jay Holfam. Uh, you've seen my name on Cloak and Dagger, Marvel's Cloak and Dagger on Freeform, seasons cool. one and two, uh, and by the time this airs on Jessica Jones, season oh, cool. three. Uh, I wrote on that as well, uh, and I just joined the staff of Supergirl. Oh, congrats! Oh, nice. You know Dana. You're, I do know Dana. Oh, she's like one of my best friends. Yeah, she's the best. Hi, Dana. Hi, Dana. <laughs> Long time listener. We'll get her on next time. Yeah, she's mm-hmm. awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, let's start there. Are okay. you a superhero guy? I am. I am. I'm a lifelong superhero geek uh, going and to work. you're getting to do this. I know. It's crazy. It's like the weirdest thing. Uh, my dad is pretty mad about it, uh, having spent <laughs> most of my life trying to tell me that reading comic books was useless and stupid, really? and I should not do that. And oh. now he really hates being shown up. Um, so I think this is like, I don't know. I've talked to a lot of writers who get mm-hmm. to work on these shows, yeah. many of whom are you know comics people, some yeah. of whom are not. But it feels like, you know, you got to join these shows, which were all sort of up and running, too. So I feel like you got to be a viewer of them as well. Yeah, yeah. How did you make your way into this world in the first place? I, it's one of those things where it was like, honestly, just over the transom. Yeah, I started, uh, my first show was Pitch, uh, mm-hmm. on Fox. Uh, I moved out here. I was a playwright in New York, uh, and I went out with like a cop show sample and then somehow wound up on Pitch. Hmm. Uh, and then basically told my reps, like, I want to be working in genre TV. That's, that's what I wanted to do the whole time. I've always been a genre TV person from Misfits of Science and <laughs> Battlestar Galactica yes. all yeah. the way. Like, that's been my jam. Star Trek, Star Wars, you name it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they said they basically said Marvel is looking for writers. Wow. Uh, did you for have Cloak and Dagger? Did you have material that showed not, that you like genre? Not really. Like interesting. Uh one of those things where I was a playwright, but I was right. not a very successful playwright <laughs> at least in my estimation. Very rarely produced lots of readings and I had this play that I loved, dearly loved and worked on for years in New York that's as a time travel bent mm-hmm. to it uh, that no one in New York cared about at all. And it has thus far gotten me almost every job I've gotten. Really? Yeah. What do you think people respond to in that? Uh, I think they respond to the way that like, I use genre as a storytelling method. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they respond well, the way they respond to most plays, the dialogue and the character, mm-hmm. um, the weirdly I've become a, in the room a, a sort of story and structure guy really? more than mm-hmm. dialogue and character. That's interesting. This came up on in this last interview we just where, you know, the thing you think you bring to a room may not be the thing that's either needed in the room or the, the thing you find yourself doing in the room. Um, has this been uh, your experience? 
experience, Bridget, you've been on a few shows. You can maybe speak to like your place in the room and what how you sort of ingratiate yourself in the room as well. Oh, yeah. Um, that is such a process. Um, it's funny because my first job, 1122, was like, we were literally in a house. Yeah. We were in a house in a living room and it felt like a tiny little family. And we like, I cried when it was over. And <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was such a beautiful, warm experience. And then I went to Once Upon a Time, which was like a machine. Yeah. Like I was, it was already up and running. It was a huge franchise. I remember I walked in the first day and the entire room was just covered in fan art from like oh years God. and years. Wow. And it's Snow White and it's wrong. And I was just like, oh my God. Oh my God. Like I was just so overwhelmed. And what season did you come in? Five. Season That's five. so hard yeah. too. And like, it was just like, they knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah. And in the first room, I really, like we didn't even, it was in the beginning of Hulu. So there weren't even really yeah. titles. Like nobody <laughs> had like a official title. So it was very sort of casual. But at once upon a time, it was very hierarchical. And not mm. in necessarily a bad way. It's just they had a thing. You mm -hmm. had 22 episodes a year. You had to get it done. You had to know your place. And that was that, you yeah. know. So, so what how I, did you adjust? Slowly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, I think in those kinds of rooms, and it was also a big room um, with very experienced people. Mm -hmm. um, when, when I was first, like my first year there, I just didn't know where I fit in. I, you know, I would try and say things and I thought they were completely stupid. I thought oh. I was going to get fired like 10 separate times. And then very slowly, I started realizing that there were certain things that I did that would just land. And I, it wasn't how I thought of myself. Like I always thought that I was a character person, mm -hmm. that I, that's what I would bring to a room. And it is still to some degree what I bring, but I discovered that I was actually really good at story twists. <laughs> and this was just something that like, I would never have been able to tell you before I started doing it constantly. Right. And then I just, you know, I just started noticing, oh, I'm coming up with a lot of those ideas. And within a couple of years, I found that like, you know, when I go in now, I'm very clear about what it is mm -hmm. that I bring. And I can say, oh, well, I'm really good with character. But also when you need that like act six twist or the act three twist, like that's often something that I can bring mm -hmm. for reasons I don't mm -hmm. know why. I have no idea why. That's something that my brain does, but it's it funny. appears to well, do. It felt like it was a muscle that was there that just needed to sort of be worked. And you got that opportunity on Once Upon a Time. Yeah. And weirdly, it seems like, you know, <laughs> despite the years and years and years of people has been doing this, people do have strengths and weaknesses. You know, yeah. they really do. Mm -hmm. Like there is a thing that you do well, that your boss does well, that your EP does well, that your producer does well. And they're so, oftentimes they're completely different, mm -hmm. which is why I love rooms so much. Interesting. Yeah. What, what has been your room experience, John? So it's interesting because my actual room experience is really limited yeah. to just working on, uh, working as a writer for Carl Schaefer on Z Nation. Now, um, and that was the only room experience I'd had before, before doing my yeah. own show. Now, did you come into Z Nation as a writer? No, or as, a as a director. Okay. Yeah. And again, I had, had done a long path. I mean, my yeah. path uh, to make it quick. I mean, I started in fine arts and was, was a painter and a sculptor and then a fabricator for a decade. And wow. then basically started working my way into into cinema and with always an eye towards feature filmmaking mm -hmm. and that's all i was interested you know at the time my mind was i want to be like 
Jim Jarmusch or right. Richard Linklater. <laughs> you know, this, yeah. is what, this is what this I was, was into. This was the early mid-90s, yeah, the exactly. heyday of indie Mr. cinema. Jane. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mr. So, I, so, that, so I was trying to get that any way I could. I went through documentaries. Documentaries were fantastic because I learned so much. I got my 10,000 hours. Uh, but I also was, I remember one week where I went from my HBO premiere of the documentary we did the next following day was doing a demolition job for $90 a day. Oh, and so I realized, okay, these, <laughs> these don't pay. Yeah. Um, I was fortunate enough around that time, this is early 2000s, to get hired on my first episodic directing job. That was by uh, Stephen Bochco on um, NYPD Blue. Yeah. And they kept bringing me back. And for the final season, I got to be a producer on mm -hmm. the show. Oh, wow. So that was the first. I, I go back to there because that's my first experience with seeing really how television is made, mm -hmm. especially network mm -hmm. television. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and what a place to learn, too. Right. I mean, yeah, exactly. So top was, of form. Right. I mean, through. there was Steven, of course, who <sighs> was, you know, just an amazing human being and, and, and truly just a brilliant guy and a very yeah. giving guy. But at that time, there was Nick Wooten and Matt Olmstead, and worked with them. They brought me on another show they were doing at the time, and then Billy Finkelstein was the head writer. Mm -hmm. And so it was really about seeing how these scripts were created, how they would change through the process, how how punishing a twenty two episode season can yeah. be on so on quality, <laughs> oh even God. at times. How there's going to be ebbs and flows. Yeah. yeah. Um, but another thing I realized as a as a from a directing standpoint was how the the forty two time limit forty two minute time limit of network and broadcast television could reduce um, could reduce TV to almost being like wall to wall dialogue radio play. The hmm. dialogue was premium, yeah. especially on shows like that, which started with Milch and the movie. Yeah. It was a very dialogue driven show. Um, which somewhat ran ran counter to my instincts, sure. which were probably more cinematic and more right. about, you know, visual they, storytelling. Well, they call it shoe leather. I love shoe leather, yeah. but it's just got to be it, it's just got to be exciting. You know, right. if it's boring, then it's shoe leather. Yeah. But to have to edit all that stuff out, it started to make me think about, well, I think features is where I, I want to live. Mm -hmm. Um now, fast forward to doing Z Nation, and now the landscape's really changed. And by the time I got hired by Carl to do Z Nation, it was a concerted effort to get back into television. Mm -hmm. I'd done some features, uh, but I could see the landscape changing. And so, to go back to your original question of who are you in the room, when I got in that room, I was kind of like, I found myself being the stick in the mud, really, because... Uh, it, that was a very comedic show, mm -hmm. of course. So the room was a lot of jokes mm -hmm. and everyone kind of one-upping jokes. And I was the person who was, A, having an eye t towards production, saying, yes, they could fall off a cliff into a, you know, into a pool of 12,000 writhing zombies, <laughs> but it's going to look like crap. Right. <laughs> you know, how about it's too... <laughs> you know, and, 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 and it was interesting because I remember I would get down to, I was always pushing for things that are not as fun again in a room and not as sexy, which is like suspense and creating mm -hmm. suspense. And to some degree, I realized I was on the wrong show and everyone recognized <laughs> that, but they appreciated that I could bring that angle that I was always pushing for a little more horror, a little more suspense. Cause yeah. I am a genre guy, sure. but I, but I like 
taking ridiculous things seriously. Yeah. You know, that's which is not what that show does. No, it's not what that show yeah. does. And it was a it was truly a wonderful experience to work on it. And Carl's a great guy. It was mm -hmm. a great group of people. But you know, I loved I was inspired by movies like Alien that mm -hmm. took kind of a Roger Corman idea and played it out like yeah. high art. Right. Um and it was about the suspense and it was about creating this completely real scenario. So that when I got the opportunity to, to sort of, well, the one thing I remember was that on, on, uh, Z nation, I was in that room a few years. I was, I stopped directing it after a while, mm -hmm. um, because it didn't pay well, but the writing, I wanted to get more experience in the room. That's smart. And every season I pitched them as it was always talking about hordes and big giant kind of things and drones and massive yeah. things. I said, we got to do an episode. That's like dual, just <laughs> one person get trying to get Great. away from one zombie yeah and that idea was rejected every season i was there <laughs> so it took me being able to actually yeah. create my own show to, to write that episode yeah um, and i'll say the, and i, I want to pick up on this later but yeah. like the the way that tension is used the way that zombies are doled out in uh <laughs> black summer that like we don't see that many, but just getting a few at the beginning lets us know that they're there. So there's mm -hmm. always tension going on, no right. matter what is happening on screen. I thought it was really smart and a real like it looks to budget, it looks to production, but it's also just smart storytelling. Yeah, I really yeah. enjoyed that. Good. Well, thank you. I mean, those are just kind of classic Spielberg rules, yeah. right? Of just you know, you just don't over set, don't show too much of the monster, right. and don't know, and that the, the time in between things is 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 the meat and potatoes. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's alarming to me how often those <laughs> rules that clearly work very well are yes. not followed. Right. Um, I'm wondering, like. Uh, on these superhero shows, mm -hmm. Jay, are you able to sort of put your fandom hat aside oh, and yeah. work as a storyteller? Oh, and, yeah. I mean, and the, how is that? The great thing about like, it's, it's been different. Like the Marvel sort of TV aesthetic is obviously different than what we do on Supergirl. Yeah. Uh, that's a very, a slightly different sort of head. Uh, and I'll talk about that, like that difference in a second. So like when in sort of the Marvel world, it's pretty easy because honestly, they don't want that much of the sort of fandom. Like you want to, mm -hmm. the great thing about working with Joe on Cloak and Dagger was that we always started with like a big pile of comics and looking for images to sort of go oh, back yeah. to, but we wanted to be different and like especially with cloak and dagger uh because those characters are so mired in the yeah. 80s and in sort of the <laughs> racial and social mm -hmm. politics of the 80s that like joe immediately wanted to make a sharp turn from that mm -hmm. and we all just went with it we we're all like yes we don't want a black guy with nobody who's <laughs> always clamoring for the white pure light of the pretty white girl <laughs> with the boob window and so we were really able to like it was good to sort of keep grounded and keep sort of in check with the comics and use what's useful. But then at the end of the day, the show is its own show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, with Supergirl, there is a larger sort of universe. There's a Berlanti universe. Right. And they are a little bit more like Marvel on the TV side is a little bit like we're not really superhero shows. We don't right. do mass so much. We don't do costumes. Yeah. Yeah. No one is ever. I don't think anyone is ever going to call them cloak and dagger ever. <laughs> Whereas that's funny. I never thought about yeah, that. <laughs> Whereas it's, it's Supergirl, yeah. you know, and like she's fighting yeah. Superman villains and all of that. And so there's a little bit more sort of, this is what we are. Mm -hmm. uh, and you get to indulge your, a little your bit fandom more. Yeah. <laughs> and a little bit more, sort of wear it on my sleeve there and like you know 
It's, I thought that was cool. so smart of Marvel to sort of distinguish mm-hmm. itself yeah. in the TV space from the movie space, which is so superhero. Oh, right. Yeah. And then you go to the TV space, and for the most part, you do get sort of slower, yeah. sort of more cinematic character explorations. Especially yeah. really smart. At the time. Like yeah. when they launched Agents time, of yeah. S.H.I.E.L.D., like, that's a spy show. Yes. Like, we yeah, don't yeah, have yeah. to. You're not looking for the Hulk in this. No. no yeah. No. Yeah. And like, and sort of freeing up like the, the now late and lamented Marvel Netflix universe mm-hmm. from being so tied to the like mm-hmm. larger MCU. Yeah. And getting to tell those sort of smaller stories yeah. and like working on Jessica Jones, like that was definitely in a way my comic book knowledge and my sort of genre chops were almost a detriment in that mm-hmm. room. I um, can see that. Because yeah, yeah. I, I love Melissa. She is awesome. She is not interested in superheroes <laughs> or superhero comic book stuff unless really there, unless it absolutely 100% serves the character and the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and anything that, anything that smelled of like the comic book geeks will like this. She was like, nope, not wow. interested out. You Interesting. Know, but was, is, is that your like when you're hired for these rooms? Do you mm-hmm. find that you are the comic book guy, or is are is everyone a comic book guy, or half of them comic book <laughs> people? Like how does how does it break down? In general, I found there's like two real comic book people in the room. Um, two, maybe three. And then the rest, it's a smattering of like others, at least one person who doesn't know, doesn't know, doesn't care. They're just here for story. And interestingly, it was the same on pitch. Uh, I got to work with Jonathan Igla, who is a great writer. He worked on Mad Men for years, terrific writer who has literally an encyclopedic knowledge of baseball and baseball rules and lore (laughs) and like everything about baseball, as well as Eli Addy, who I don't think had ever been to a baseball (laughs) Right. <laughs> I could not care. And like, see, that's a great room. Yeah, that's, that's what makes a great room. Yeah, that's why they're so amazing. Yeah. Exactly. And that's yeah. I feel like that's the balance that most of the sort of like genre writer mm-hmm. uh showrunners go for is you want to have someone who's read a bunch of comics and can talk about uh Crisis on Infinite Earth <laughs> for 20 minutes. I'm not saying anyone did. Um, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> it was a pod request. It sure, was sure. <laughs> uh but you also want to have people who are just like What's the good story? Yeah. Who are these characters? What what what's the conflict here between these two people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I found, I found that when uh, when I did documentaries, it was almost similar to like a writer's room mm-hmm. kind of breakdown in that there would be it was usually four of us, and there would be two of them would be like really expert now on the subject we were following because mm-hmm. we were doing sort of verite in the moment sure. following people around type of documentaries so one of them for instance was about the world of the early days of the MMA world so our our producers two of our producers that were on you know that were part of this crew knew everything um and and then in that case my job was to know nothing and right. we were both equally valuable yeah, in that absolutely. situation because, you know, I could be like, I know that sounds interesting, but I don't really care about it. So maybe the audience won't care. Right. You know, and and so it's it is it's great to have kind of the year as as every room, I think, is broken down with the resident experts and people are good sure. at this and people are good at this yep. kind of thing. But yeah. sometimes it's the, it's it's the gaps in everyone's knowledge is sometimes the place where their most interesting stuff is, is going to come Someone out. Yeah. Those questions. I mean, Bridget, you've been in a number of rooms now. What is, and, and presumably will be running your own in the next year or so. What, uh, Who yeah, knows? I'm calling your shot. <laughs> <laughs> what is the stuff you've taken from these rooms that you've been in that you want to apply to your own show running? 
Oh, um, the uh, immediately what comes to mind is the a really really strong number two. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, you know, just to explain briefly yeah. for people who don't know what a number two is, Always but um, usually there's a showrunner, and the showrunners, in my experience, are in the room. But as the season goes on, you kind of see them less and less, just because they're juggling so much. They're juggling posts. Right. They've got you know pre-production for episodes especially in network television it's insane um but they need somebody a number two person who runs the room and if you do not have this is almost as essential i've found as a good showrunner because they are the person who guides the room all day long and if that person doesn't function well then the room can often often be like not productive Mm -hmm. and you need you know the showrunners need to know that somebody in there is guiding the process you know and David Goodman was our number two on Once Upon a Time. And then he came, I went with him and one other writer to Amazing Stories. And he is like one of the greatest number twos in the world. And I learned everything I know about uh, breaking a story, learning how to pitch it to a showrunner, how to pitch it in, in stages, like how to say, here's a basic idea. Do you like that? If they like that, oh, that's great. Smart. Then we go and we start digging into it. But a lot of people sort of want to jump into the, you know, the fun, cool details right, right away when really you just at first just need to know, do you like it? Okay, here it is at like 10,000 feet, as we used to say. Right. Here it is at 5,000 feet, a little bit more detail. Okay, now we're going to pitch the entire thing to you and lay the whole thing out. And that process would be like two or three weeks long. <laughs> and because you were like sort of doing it in piecemeal, you were able to like keep the train on the track. That's really smart. So I find like even if production isn't happening, that process, I think, for a room is really ultimately, I think, the most productive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope to bring that to yeah. not only any show that I run, but any show that I'm a part of, because mm-hmm. I just think that yeah. everyone functions really well when there's somebody saying, okay, we've talked about that long enough, or no, that's not exactly what we need to be talking <laughs> yeah. about right now. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, that's, uh, you know I, I, I was lucky enough to be to work for Julie Pleck for the past several years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and some of the writers I got to work with through her are people like you're talking about, like, like Chris Hollier. Oh, and, I worked with Chris. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you? Yeah. He was yeah. on season seven. Yeah. Chris is great. And I got to do a couple of his episodes. I remember, and he was, you know, and, and like Mike Narducci as well, who's mm-hmm. with him. But, but yeah. Chris was one of those guys who was obviously like running the room yes. because at that time she had multiple shows on the air and everyone was being spread around, but he would also be on set. Hmm. You know, he'd come out to Atlanta, wherever we were, And I got to spend those three weeks with him and, again, learned a hell of a lot from people like him who just Mm. knew, you know, who was really smart about, obviously, the story, the big picture, the season, the series, but could also make quick decisions that would be ultimately like – production friendly decisions like listen here's i'll pitch you this idea we can't you know Mm -hmm. we could do this fight out in the woods but it's only going to be so interesting what if we you know and your budgets we only have this long to shoot it what if we do it in this and these kind of changes that that he could very quickly and smartly say well 
you know, we did one of those before. We're not mm-hmm. going to do that. Or that's no, a great idea. And then start to pivot. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I found him as a, as that type of person you seem to be referring to. I think too, like one thing about, and Chris totally is, um, is that it's the ability to feel confident in your decision too. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that I think, I mean, it's terrifying to do this job a lot of times because it's, it's, you know, it's all subjective. I like a story Absolutely. point. You don't, one of us is going to be right and wrong, you know, but you have to feel confident in the decision in order to move forward. And eventually that's the story. We're going to go with it. Right. That's it. (laughs) And when I think people are afraid to make the decisions, that's when you get into these chaotic situations where you're rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. And I've been so lucky because I haven't really experienced that much Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. both the number two and the showrunners will say, okay, that's what we're doing. Yep. And then you go forward and, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it does. And that's just always going to be the case, you know. And to pick up on that, I mean, with that, the relationship between the number two and the showrunner and making sure that they're like on the same page, even if they're not necessarily like this falls on the number two a little bit more, even if they're not necessarily like aesthetically aligned. Mm -hmm. um, Our number two on Cloak, uh, Pete Calloway, is great. And he's like a weird, freaky, geniusy kind of guy who came to us from Legion. so that gives you an idea of like where his sort of aesthetic is. Joe is is terrific, but is a much more sort of straightforward yeah. meat and potatoes person. And like there's always a little bit of tension between their two visions, but Pete as the number two was always like, it's Joe show. Yeah. You know, at the end of the David day, it's Joe show. Too, yeah. I will pitch the crazy thing. And <laughs> a, a, a fair amount of the craziness that Pete pitched made it on screen. But there were definitely things where he's like, Joe's like, I'm not, I'm sure. not interested in that. Yeah. And then Pete's just like, okay, we're fair. moving on. Right. Yeah. And a good number two knows when to like push a little bit further and say, you know, I don't know if you're hearing the room. Like the room really believes in mm. this. Yeah. And then finally to say, you know what? We're not selling it. Okay. Well, let's move on and find something you do like. Yeah, yeah. it's it's really a, it's such a hard, hard job that yeah. no one talks about very much. Well, and it's it's a hard aspect or characteristic to quantify too, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, we're talking about a few different things. One of which is, and and this came up earlier, that like to do this job, to be a writer, especially in television, you need an enormous amount of ego, but you also need no ego at yeah. all, yeah. <laughs> right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Uh, have you all found that like? A, a way to balance this as far as like existing with your coworkers and and putting the project first has it ever been a struggle have you seen others struggle with it absolutely um yeah yeah absolutely i've seen many struggle with it and i feel like it's your job as as a showrunner same as if you are you know a, a running a feature film but now let's just say as a showrunner which i'd much prefer that because you're working with a lot more people you're mm-hmm. not and um, I feel that the job is that you're essentially, you're, you're the curator of the ideas. Um, they don't have to be generated by you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hopefully they're not, you know, my, my hope is always to surround myself with, and everyone says this, but it's really the truth is people much smarter than you yeah. and p- you, not being threatened by that, but being, you know, elated by the fact that this DP and this writer and this production designer, they're, they're just way better than you at all of these things. Your, your talent is to be able to put these people together. And ultimately your job is to be very big picture, you know? And again, 
having come from feature films where you have this Eric von Stroheim image of the dictatorial <laughs> director. Um, and I found the, the better I am and the better the product is, is the more that I can lead with a very gentle touch mm -hmm. and, and deal with everyone individually um, and let ideas be out there. And again, curate the ideas in a gentle way know when to pull the plug or or to make the decision as you say when yeah. it's like okay we heard that idea that may not be the right one right now let's go with this one and maybe we'll circle back whatever it is you have to kind of create this tone and this atmosphere where people feel free to fail and come mm -hmm. up with dumb ideas but also yeah. also you want to create a, an atmosphere where everyone else is as quick to throw out their maybe bad idea mm -hmm. as you are. So, you know, you, I feel I need the room to respond to my ideas. If no one's responding to the idea, then it's probably not that good or it needs sure. to be repackaged or redelivered. Right. So I hopefully we all can kind of put ideas out yeah. there and dismiss them if no one is is grabbing onto it. Yeah. Well, so much is about communication and listening, right? And these yeah. are skills that really can't be taught. You yeah. sort of have to do this by, learn it by doing it. Um, it is, tell us about it, your experience. It is, I was just thinking about, like, I was one of those people that really had to learn, I had to gain confidence. Mm -hmm. um, I came in, and I've noticed this, that a lot of female writers my age also came in and had to struggle with feeling like a sense of belonging because there weren't as many you know, female writers yeah. that we looked up to. It was mostly mm -hmm. men. And still to this day, I'm often one of the w few women in a room. Like, that's still my experience. And even though they're all lovely people and, and there's no, like, me too situations or anything, you still feel that difference. Sure. And, you know, but it is like once you gain the confidence in the room, there is this funny kind of uh, tension between being confident in your idea and then recognizing <laughs> your idea was terrible. <laughs> like, and, and it is, yeah. and then sort of getting like a slight confidence hit, and yeah. then having to, <laughs> having to say like, "No, deep inside, I know I'm okay. Like it's fine. Yeah. I'll just say another one." Yeah. You know? yeah. And it is like you know, the more comfortable you get with with people, then I think you start caring less. But even to this day, like I'm I'm working with my bosses on something, and I had to pitch it to them yesterday, and I was so nervous. And I've been yeah. working with them for four years. That's crazy. You mm -hmm. know. Know, but they also like they have taught me a lot about that because mm -hmm. like when we um, this is Adam Horowitz and Eddie Kitsis mm -hmm. who created Once Upon a Time and then were asked to run Amazing Stories and on you know when when they moved from their own show on ABC to working on a show with Steven Spielberg they suddenly had a new experience too sure. where they now had to pitch to Steven Spielberg <laughs> and hear sometimes yeah I don't like that you know and right. And they have a really, I think, for me, they're kind of a model of how you be confident in yourself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then you just, you know, say, okay, well, that one didn't work out, but I can still stand up and say, great, Stephen, I'll see you next week. You know, <laughs> and watching them sort of like, because I think a lot of showrunners in this town kind of shoot themselves in the foot 
at a certain point where it's like my way or no way. Mm -hmm. And they have really learned how to work within the system, Mm -hmm. you know, where they understand that there's a network, there's a Spielberg, there's an Amblin, there's whoever you're dealing with. They're always going to give you notes. And some of your stuff isn't going to go no matter who you are for the most part, you know, for the most part. And that's always how TV is going to be made. It's a collaborative medium. So there are always other people either to answer to or to listen to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if your ego gets in the way, one of those people might have a wonderful idea, you know, like just because you've been doing something for 20 years and you're, you know, whoever you are, doesn't mean that some network executive, they might actually be on the right track about something. They might not know exactly what, what they mean, but if you sit and listen to them and think, okay, well, why are they not responding to this? You often find that they're right. So if you have too much ego, then you, you risk not, you know, losing something in your product. Totally. And, And I think that, I think that my goal is always, because like you say, if you, someone, this happens all the time, right? The, the, the person in the room who pitches an idea and no one responds and they keep pitching it and keep pitching it. And that idea is never going to go. It's never going to, it starts to become the, the, the problem idea. Mm-hmm. But you know, what I find is if, if an idea is really important and the, the person in charge is not responding, uh, what I try to do is a figure out what is not working about that idea, why yeah. they're not responding. And then, and I don't say this in a manipulative, manipulative way. I say this in a collaborative way. How do I get them to co-sign this idea? Mm-hmm. How do I get them to be mm-hmm. a part of the creation of the idea right. rather than sure. it was my great idea. <laughs> let's say yes oh, to yes. it. Right. How about I'm, we, create a environment and a scenario where they can co-create the idea with you. And I do that with executives just as much as I do with people in the room. And when you include people in the process rather than wait, 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 here it comes, check it out. Um, When you do that, sometimes every, it's not going to be the the party you thought it was the celebration of the brilliant idea. (laughs) You you know, it's better to, if you can, without showing things that are undercooked and they're going to get you in trouble for that, including people in the creation process. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. people yeah. who you need to co-sign. Yeah. Yeah. And then they have, then they're invested in the idea. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think there is, and manipulation's not a positive word right. for it, but there is some of that, right? It's about communicating your idea in a way that brings others in instead of dictating an right. idea. And uh, collaborating. Uh, for me, it's all about just calibrating the dials of my self-loathing. <laughs> To like oh, figure wow. out exactly how I'm okay in That's the room. The for this yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's all like, I, yeah, it's, uh, I definitely lean on the the like the standard writers. Here's a terrible pitch. Yeah. I will yeah. almost, this is a bad version. I will almost yeah. never say, even if I think my idea is a slice of fried gold, I will almost never say, here's a great idea. You oh, guys. yeah, me yeah. neither. I never once the writer who that. did that all the time. You and can. almost always the ideas that came out after were terrible. Or like, like ideas that were so yeah. obvious that we were like, yeah, we all realized right. that. <laughs> <That's> that. <laughs> what are you doing? Um, always so, undersell. Always oh, undersell. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, always just, yeah, just like dust yourself off. I. It's interesting because, you know, playwrights get that sort of knock uh, as being like people who hold on to their ideas because mm. in general, playwriting is done alone and yeah. it's a solid, sort of solitary voice thing. My training in playwriting, I came up through so many playwriting groups, uh, in particular, Great. this group Youngblood at Ensemble Studio Theater 
in New York. Uh, and we met every week and we did a lot of like writing exercises right. and a lot of, it was very, very collaborative. And it taught me very early to not be precious about my ideas or my work. Yeah. And that it really is even, even in a way then it was like best idea wins. Yeah. You know, I always told my actors, uh, when we were doing plays, like if you come up with a funnier line, say it, yeah. I'll take credit for it. <laughs> but say it. I don't care. I just want to get my laughs. Yeah. I don't, I don't care how I get them. Yeah, I think that's, and I would recommend this to any listeners who are, you know, starting out writing or trying to sort of get a, a foothold in this business. And even, you know, 15 years in, I've done this as started basically a writer's room yeah. where we all work on our own stuff, but it's very collaborative. And I think yeah. that really teaches you, first of all, you get the better ideas, right? You have yeah. all those brains on it, but it does teach you not to be precious, yeah. which I think a lot of new writers coming into a room have a problem with. Yeah. And teaches you how to be in a room. Like, Absolutely. I was just talking to um, a colleague of mine who's on a new show now, and uh, she was just talking about a, a bunch of younger writers on that show who don't know how to be in a room yeah. and I was really puzzled by this because I thought isn't it just sitting like right now what we're doing right now doing but it. she said like they don't know how to contribute they don't know how to understand yeah. that oh this is what we're talking about now they don't know how and it's incredibly frustrating and stressful and I know the the guild does like a staff writer boot mm -hmm. camp or yeah. something yeah yeah which I've been hearing about a lot it is it's great. valuable it's, have you done it I've done it oh, um, I got a sort of lucky situation where I was a humanitas fellow mm -hmm. Uh, and they got us to sit down with Glenn Mazzara for three hours. So he gave us like the, the mini staff writer boot yeah. camp. I bet he's awesome at that. He yeah. was great. <laughs> and then when I staffed on pitch, I like turned out the next week was the, the official staff writer boot camp and I did it. And it really, I, I cannot stress it enough. It's absolutely invaluable. Oh, that's great. So yeah, people should look for that. I yeah. assume it's open only to WGA members. Only WGA members and great. only first time staff. Um, oh, so staff writer, you can do it after if like you're off cycle. Cause I think they just announced that it's coming up. Yeah. Like like next yeah. week or something. There was like an email. Yeah. It's like either, I think it's the Saturday, the 15th of June. Oh. So you may have missed it, but you can do it next year. Yeah. They do it at least once or twice. The yeah. thing about that is, though, you know, I mean, you don't want to hurt yourself so early in your career, you know, going mm -hmm. into a room yeah. and, and, and not being the person who's contributing or is making something more difficult in a stressful situation, you know, pretty quickly, it's from everyone that you've worked with that you get your jobs, right? Yeah, you know, absolutely. and you remember the person that drove you insane, even yeah. if they ended up being good on the page, even if ultimately they have wonderful ideas, if they can't sit at a table and, and, and you know, function in a group, then they're going to struggle. Yeah. And it does come back to that thing, which again is you can really only learn by doing is like how to read a room, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. it's playing, it's playing poker with a bunch of people without cards and trying yes. to figure out what hand you have yeah. and how to play that. Um, but again, it's, it's, you know, that's, that's why there's value in like put together a group, go do the WGA group, mm. whatever it is, yeah. you know, find a way to, to do that. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's chemistry, right? Just like yeah, in sure. a band, just mm -hmm. like any kind of creative yeah. collaboration, you need chemistry and, and people will fulfill different roles in that room. And sometimes maybe, uh, some people are brought in there to be the the one who's going to make the most noise from time to time and mm -hmm. and that's and then there's some people who are going to lay back and say nothing but come in with something brilliant every you know mm -hmm. once a day or something mm -hmm. yeah um but I, I i agree i think what i think is the most you know what's important and what what i don't like to see is and and what i do like to see is that 
when the focus is really kind of uh, not all on the same, when the focus yeah. is not kind of on what is being discussed, you know, mm-hmm. and and that's why sometimes when there's too many people in the room, it can yeah. be the the focus sure. can be a little diffuse. Mm-hmm. I personally like much fewer people, I you know, too. a small group it makes sense. I like, like five. Yeah, I think five is a was good once one. a big room. It feels like it must have been. It was, but because. Um, production was happening and writing was happening. Um, we were almost never all together in the same. Sure. It was, I think it was like seven and then the showrunners, some nine, ten, you know, mm-hmm. when everyone was there, but that was so rare. Sure. And they, uh, they were really good at putting together a room of, not really super extroverted personalities. So like there was one or two, <laughs> but mostly I think because they're kind of introverts That's and funny. that, and I think it helps when there's 10 people in the room that they're not all extroverts, <laughs> right. you know, because, yeah. um, but I find that like a core of five mm-hmm. really yeah. is uh, for me, the most productive, yeah. everyone gets to say something. No mm-hmm. one's really, you know, waiting for that moment to finally say their yeah. idea. Like ideas kind of flow freely in that, in that number. And it's yeah. just, it's a number that yeah. I like. It's a basketball team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, let's, let's take a step back and, um, John, I want to ask about NYPD Blue a little bit and like basically just working on that show and learning structure from those scripts, which are just to me, just master classes in structure. Right. So, uh, I will, you know, the one thing is I was post Milch, so I never, mm-hmm. I was never there with David. I wish I was. Mm-hmm. Um, so that had a high quality through the whole for run, sure. And everyone crazy. who was there with me right. had worked with David. So, yeah. and he had groomed these writers. So, so David's fingerprints were all over sure. it, top to bottom. Um, <clears throat> but I never got to experience, you know, just the unique experience mm-hmm. of a David Milch production. Um, and, it was very different than the way he ran it because Milch uh, famously was a, a guy who was constantly changing things as they went. And he was a big presence on set as well right. as in the room and delivering new pages on the day. And it was this very organic thing. Uh, Post Milch, which was basically uh, Wooten and Olmstead mm-hmm. were the, were the sh- uh, head writer showrunners at that time. And you, and Mark Tinker was the, the producing d- yeah. director on set. There was a real divide, uh, not a negative divide, but an intentional divide. I think that's how Stephen liked it, where there was the writers and they were in the office Mm -hmm. and then there was the production and that was on the stage. Even though it was, you know, a couple hundred yards away, the writers were never on set. Oh, wow. Um, I did not realize Very, very little, like less than on any show I've ever been on. Wow. Um, which actually made an incredible challenge for the director. I, I mean, as a director, I always want, you know, when I was in episodic directing, I always wanted the writer there because sure. that's what you find in television is that the central conflict of the whole thing is between the actors and the writers, right? <laughs> the actors, uh, the, you know, the, especially in once you are past season one, mm-hmm. um, as Stephen's yeah. famous quote, right? Season one, they work for you. Season two, you work together. <laughs> season right. three, you work for them. And, you know, and, and you're I, on season I was nine. On season like ten, exactly. <laughs> and it was it was a wild environment coming onto that show. First of all, you know, I say I was hired as a producer. I was one of many producers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was it was it was just sort of out of kindness that they brought me on there, and just because I guess they liked having me around and my energy was not disruptive. Um, 
and that I could kind of be my real role there was to be on set and help directors who are maybe hmm. less experienced um, oh, just to kind of keep you know just help guide them sure. and keep keep the uh, the the trains as running the on way, schedule as is the way with tv production is you could just get a new director every time exactly and, so and maybe their first time on this show maybe their first time altogether that's right that's right a lot of them would be actors who had worked for that's a long right. time and now you know we're just starting directing. Remember we had Ed Begley Jr. Really? <laughs> that last season who was like the, just the greatest guy in That's the world. Funny, yeah. And, uh, you know, and you could give him, you know, gentle suggestions or anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the way they kind of, so, so the, that show is very interesting in that the writing and directing was very different, uh, uh very separate. Yeah. And the set was a whole separate world. And, Again, in post Milch, I think they really were quite efficient mm-hmm. in that makes sense. In listen, if we're going to get five more years of this show or however many right. more they and got, do 22, 24 a year, right? We we really need to yeah. kind of <laughs> know what these stories are and not because eventually, as you all who've worked on these, you know, if you've worked on 20 episode shows, you know, it catches up with you by the end. And pretty right. soon yeah. you're writing them and they're <laughs> shooting them and it's going on TV like in a couple of days. Yeah. Um, so I got a sense of just how that how that hierarchy worked. And again, mm-hmm. it was very fascinating to watch Stephen Bochco because he um, again was in no question who was in charge, mm-hmm. but he could. But he in no way had to have his hands in everything that mm-hmm. was happening. He hired people and kept them around because he trusted them That's great. to do the job. And he and and I think what I learned from him right there is that if you have to micromanage, then you hired the wrong person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. It, so that really managerial style of 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 Bochco was incredibly, you know influential on me yeah. and what i also realized which is very different well this is a thing that i i learned i remember it was my first episodes directing i know it's a writing show but i'm but no no but it's, uh it's all part of it but but i remember i i was like you know i'd done a couple seasons several seasons of the show and then i was like i want to do i want to try one a little different we used to always shoot on uh you know, it was like a loose head. It wasn't mm-hmm. actually handheld camera. It was like a loose head. Mm-hmm. And and I went to Mark Tinker and I said, Mark, you know, this is I've done enough of these. Let's just do a I want to do a fully handheld episode. Okay. I'm gonna really like, I'm gonna really shake it up here. <laughs> and uh and again, having that mentality of like, I'm gonna leave my imprint on this. And uh he was like, Yeah, whatever, go ahead. <laughs> and uh <laughs> And uh, All right. so we did that. I mean, it's because he knew the answer before I learned the answer. Yeah. And the answer was that we did that. And then it was put together and it was cut like an episode of NYPD Blue. And <laughs> the music was an episode of NYPD Blue. And if you watch that, no one in the world would know that one thing was different. That's funny. And I realized that, okay, number one, my job is not to come in here and reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. My job mm-hmm. is, th- th- is to serve what they've been doing. Mm-hmm. And my job as an episodic director is to make the best version of what they're doing, not to think I can do better because yeah. they like what they're doing. Yeah. So if you come in saying, I'm going to do this amazing 360 one or you mm-hmm. guys won't believe it. Um, that's true for writing too. Uh, yeah. That's, that's like exactly when you join a staff, yeah. you know, it's important to know the show that you're on yeah. Yeah. and to say, yeah. I'm going to do the 
best version of this. And I'm not going to try to make it a cable streaming show when it's a network show yes, that really. has a ton of fans and, you know, is doing something that works. Yeah, yeah. yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I think that that's where you sometimes, when there's conflict, especially with actors or something, I've worked on things where there's an actor who thinks they're on a cable, premium cable <laughs> show, and it's like, you're on a network procedural. Yeah. Right. And that's, you know- And that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. That's a good picture. Yeah. 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 a great network procedural. Yeah, exactly. And do the best j- with, yeah. within that. And so, totally. I think that those are the lessons I took from that, uh, which are very broad lessons, which is that the tone of the show- all those, the things that define what the show is are the earliest, earliest decisions that are made. Mm-hmm. It's like the earliest yeah. ones and the last ones mm-hmm. are the ones that really define the tone, the sure. feel yeah. of it. And, and everything in between is, is construction. It's all very important, but that like, so that when you're coming up with, coming up with your show and you're going to pitch it to the network or they've they've greenlit it but now you got to sit here and get specific with them it's those very first broad ideas that you can't i think it's dangerous to kind of blow past them and say well i'll get i'll I'll sneak my idea in there like i never want to sneak my idea in there i actually (laughs) want that them to be on board with the idea very early even if it's like this is how it's going to feel because that decision is going to stick. Yeah. And again, I mean, to, to both of your point, this absolutely applies to working on somebody else's show as a writer as well. Um, Bridget, I wanted to come back around and ask you, what were you doing? Uh, 1122 was your first staff gig. It was. Yeah. Uh, And what were you doing before then? Uh, How did you enter this business? Oh, I always tell people, I often, I was a graduate of AFI and I often go back and I tell a lot of people, I'm like, my story is really depressing, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) which is great. (laughs) But, uh, you know, uh, nowadays I find even like, I don't know if if it's because the industry is changing, but there are a lot of women who are coming up the way I noticed that my bosses did, where it's they're young, they staffed early. Mm. And now by like 33, they're producers, you know. That was not my experience. Like I started in New York independent film working on sets. I always wanted to be a writer, but I just never thought I had the chops. Hmm. Eventually I decided I had literally done absolutely everything. So writing was the only thing left. And it was the thing <laughs> that like I wanted to do the most and was always doing like quietly. So I went to film school and when I initially came out of film school, I got a manager like right out of it um, for features, which How is how did that happen? Um, well, AFI had instituted for the first time, um, our year, a sort of graduation showcase, um, right. where you, a bunch of agents and managers would come and you would pitch your feature, uh, um, your thesis project, mm-hmm. which at the time didn't get to include what your TV stuff was because sure. they still were sort of thinking, mm-hmm. you know, right. film was king and yeah. TV was just what you did if you didn't make it in film, <laughs> which is not how I ever felt about it. But I ended up in in features for like three or four years oh, and right. just pitching, not really getting anywhere, making no money. <sighs> and I loved my manager, but it was not the right fit. And this is something that I tell a lot of uh, new up and coming writers, which is sometimes it can be really scary to step away from a representative because yeah. you you think, well, it's better than nothing. Actually, it isn't <laughs> <laughs> because then you're just going down a road that you never should have gone down. Yeah. And television is what I wanted to do. It's not what he did. And so I said, well, I guess maybe then I'll just do movies. But I didn't want to do movies. And so I wasted like probably three or four years, didn't really get anywhere. I had a bunch of samples 
but I couldn't get anyone to read them. So I gave up and had a baby. <laughs> and I took four years what? off. Did that baby know it was a consolation prize? <laughs> I was like, maybe, maybe that's just the better way to go here. It's, no, I'm serious. That's hilarious. <laughs> and I love her to death, but oddly, I still wanted to be a writer. Um, and so four years in, I said, I'm going to give it one more chance. And I actually pursued television, which I had never done. And within so, like two months, I was working. Wow. Yeah, so let, let's talk about that actively pursuing television. You know, what changed? I don't know. I had written a pilot um, that, and this was just when Netflix was really starting to do original material. Mm-hmm. So it was right when everything was changing. And yeah. my pilot was outside the box. That's what everyone was telling me. It's, it's we love it. It's outside the box. Can you write another one? And I just, I remember thinking, you know, this is the best I can do. I can keep writing and I will. But if you don't see it here, you're never going to see it. And anything (laughs) that I write, this is, this is me. Like, I know it works. I know it's good. I don't know what else to do. And so, (laughs) and this is great. Can you do it again? Yeah, that's exactly what it was. You do. And what someone's really saying to you when they say that is they don't like it. Right. You know, because if they did like it, then they would like it and want to hire you. Or they don't know what, they can't conceive of what to do with it. Yeah. It's like, where does this go? You know? And then within those three years, when I had a baby, the industry changed. And it was the same pilot. It was literally the same pilot that I then was like, well, I'm going to give it to more people this Mm -hmm. time. And uh, I did. And all of a sudden, everyone understood where it would go. What, What can you tell us about that pilot? Um, yeah, it's, it's called London's Calling. It's, it's still uh, my main calling card. And, um, it was about a girl with mental illness who may or may not live in dystopia, a dystopic society. And she goes between suburbia and dystopia. And it was sort of cinematic and it played with time and structure and in, in a landscape that was mostly either network or slow character dramas. It was neither. Sure. Now, yeah. You can put that thing anywhere, <laughs> you know? And That's so really it became um, a really good calling card mm-hmm. for all different kinds of things, you know? Because um, yeah. it was a character piece if you sort of, uh, you know, leaned that way, mm-hmm. like 1122. And then it was a good genre piece, which got me on Once Upon a Time. Makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. And even still, it's going out uh, next week for as a sample for something I'm pitching. So it's like, it's, great. it's still serves me really yeah. well it just didn't serve me at all for like right. five to seven years people and, couldn't wrap their heads around it but and here's the lesson that i hope everyone takes <laughs> away from this i believed in it yeah mm. i i knew that of everything i had ever written it was the thing that was me i just knew it and not in like a super egotistical way i just understood that this was the thing that represented me. Yeah. And if you really, really believe that, I feel like eventually if you find the person who likes what you do and is has the same sort of, you know, uh, um, like they're looking for genre, you know, that kind yeah. of thing, they're going to see it too. Yeah. So if you have that feeling inside and it's very deep, don't let someone else convince you that you're not right about that. Can I, I say mean, I really need to hear that today. Oh, <laughs> well, you. I'm glad. I, I hope. Yeah. Well, I th- yeah, I, but I, I think that helps. The, the thing that I also take from that, which is that, um, is that to really, to really, I think not just survive in this industry, but to to achieve the kind of 
um, to be making the kind of projects you really want to be mm-hmm. making, uh, you have to be in it for the long game and you mm-hmm. have to have patience. Yeah. And it doesn't yeah. mean that we don't finish writing a script and hope that someone just gives us the money instantly. However, I, I can't tell you how many times if you, th- the thing that you end up making or the thing that is, that is happening at that moment, it's usually years, years yeah. that, yep. that gets you there. And well, I don't want to hear that. Well, <laughs> right, exactly. You don't. Nobody does. But, but I think that's the other reason is why uh, more than ever, and I think this is the, how things have changed. You just have to have multiple things that you love yeah. equally, no. and yeah, that's that true. you're, and that you're not. Uh, and you can't. You almost have to be a bit of an actor who can walk out of the audition and shake it off and go to the next one. You have to have your multiple things because if you're if all your energy is going into this one yeah. project, it won't get made. Yeah. But the minute you can find a way to be forced to ignore it is the minute when everyone else is interested. <laughs> interested. It's just a weird way that the energy yeah. of the universe works. Yeah. That you need to have these you know plates spinning yeah. mm-hmm. and well there's something too I think and, and maybe you uh, uh, have this experience too that like once you've made that thing or, or written that thing that you care about that mm-hmm. sort of came from you you understand that you can do it again. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Um, I want to ask, uh, uh, you know, let's get deep in the weeds on process for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we're talking about, you know, it's not enough just to write one thing. And and Jay, when you were writing plays, were you writing a ton? What is your relationship to the process of writing? It's interesting because it has changed a lot. Like, I wrote a lot of plays. Mm-hmm. Like, I wrote something like I counted uh, a couple of years ago. I wrote an article in American Theater wherein I retired from playwriting. <laughs> uh, and part of that process was like me doing a really clear eyed accounting of what I had done. Interesting. And what essentially 20 years of or 25 years of playwriting yeah. had uh, added up to. So you announced your retirement? Is I did. Yeah. yeah. I announced. I was like, that's it. I'm, I'm done. Jersey. I was, yeah. I was like, I'm, I'm out you guys. Uh, I, I did it. Um, yay. Uh, and it was like 10 full length plays. It's amazing. Uh, and like, I don't know, f- like a hundred short plays, like right. so many plays, yeah. so much work. It's interesting that when I switched over, uh, I don't have nearly that many samples. Like when I met with Glenn Mazzara and he had all the humanitas fellows sitting there, uh, it was when he was working on Damien mm-hmm. and he, cause he's, a prince among men invited all of his support staff to sit in as well oh, on his amazing. talk. And of course his support staff, all female, um, yeah. cause he's a prince among men. And we <laughs> went around the room and he asked everyone how many samples they had. And at that time I hmm. had two features that I felt pretty comfortable about and one pilot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and around the room, there was like an average of like three to five scripts. And then he turned to his support staff and asked them and they were each like 11. Wow. 10. Yeah. Seven. I was like, whoa, oh, <laughs> crap. But that's interesting. I mean, you, you were yeah. in a similar position that my writing partner and I were in where we did spend 10 years writing a new script every month, yeah. but it was being put on its feet. They're not samples, but we were doing the work. So exactly. how do you come out of that? What do you come out of that with a, what's your goal coming out of it? My goal is like the, the place where I'm at now is also, also like when I started getting into this, I did get into it like, okay, I would like to get a job. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to write 
write samples that I care about and I'm invested in, but that I'm aware these are samples that if, for me coming into it sort of as a, like an outsider, mm-hmm. it was also very much like, I understand that none of these things are going to get made. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to write this pilot as a sample of right. my work, knowing I'm not going to attach my like heart and soul to right. it because it's not going to get that made. That has to be kind of freeing. It, yeah, which is freeing. And I thought it was like, and I think it served me well in the writing of it and still being invested in the characters in the world and like doing the work and not sort of like dashing it off like, I'm a super cynical dude, but, uh, so it's been the writing process for me now has definitely been shifting my gears into this could maybe actually get made. Like I've got a couple years mm-hmm. of like being a, a writer now. I'm now in that, like I can go out and start pitching things of mm-hmm. my own. And it's right now it is like, for me, the process is what do I actually give a shit about? Yeah. What am I really invested in? What do I want to say with this medium and how do I want to say it? Yeah. Uh, and thankfully having now worked on a couple shows, I have the background of what was it like when I was in the room when we were trying to figure out what do we want to say with the show to apply to my own work. Yeah. That's really smart. And so let's, let's get real nuts and bolts on this. And I'm going to come to you two as well. When you are thinking about that stuff. Mm-hmm. What does it look like? You know, if you're you're right now, you're on staff, so you're going yeah. into the office. But like, given your druthers, given the time, what does an actual day working oh, on something look left like? on my own, left to my <laughs> absolute own devices, and actually doing it, not just watching TNT all day, right? Exactly, uh, would be. I mean, I'm an early morning writer personally. Mm-hmm. I prefer to like wake up, go to the gym, go work out or something, and then write from like nine to two. And then screw off and do the rest of my day and try to like focus it there. Cause that's what I'm sort of freshest and my Mm -hmm. brain works the best. I've never been a late night writer. And is that actual time on the computer writing? Is it? It's time in front of the computer. Mm -hmm. So there'll be a little writing, a little walking away, a little thinking, a little sort of distracting. Uh, I'm definitely also, I'm not like a a quiet room writer. Mm -hmm. Uh, I need noise and TV or music or to be in a cafe where there's things going on because otherwise I definitely spiral down and don't focus as well. Yeah. Weirdly. Do you set yourself goals? Yeah. I will always set like day goals. Like I'll, I'll put in like reminders uh, uh, on my calendar of like, That's great. this is, I want to have this draft done by here. I want to have this outline done by here and all of those. I blow past them regularly. <laughs> uh, but at least they're there. And my, phone tells me, my phone tells me I should be doing something else. Um, and yeah, the process for me, it always, almost always starts with, either a title or an image. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I try to figure out characters and the story. And then once I sort of start getting a sense of the characters and the story, the real hard stuff is the why this Mm -hmm. Uh, and what, what does this mean to me? Like why, why am I attracted to this story and these characters? What do I want to write about? Exactly. And then once I unlock that, everything sort of falls into place. And that can take, that can honestly take a long time. Sure. Uh, I had a thing I was working on like, literally everyone else in this town, a Frankenstein story. Uh, and I've been working on it in various forms for like three or four years. Hmm. I wrote at least one draft. I wrote so many outlines of this thing, kept rebreaking it, rebreaking it. Was it about the scientist? Was it about the monster? I wanted it to be about a woman. So how do I get her in there? All of this stuff. And I'd like, had hit on a couple of ideas that I really liked, but still there was something missing. And 
it was this thing where I was like at the gym, I was like running around uh, doing laps uh, and someone asked me what I was sort of working on and I gave them what had sort of developed into like my pitch that mm-hmm. wasn't the, that wasn't the thing, uh, which is basically it's, you know, it's the Bride of Frankenstein from the bride's perspective. And suddenly I was like, I had the character in a way because I was like, she's a bride. And then once, once I had that, everything else, everything else about the story that I'd been struggling with, like locked into place. Wow. And I knew what this thing was about. Yeah. And, and sometimes that's what it takes. I yeah. mean, this is, I will bother my wife all the time with like, <laughs> I just need to air this. And I have a writing partner. <laughs> she still wants to hear it. Um, what about you two? What does the process look like when you are writing something, uh, specifically for yourself? Cause I know like that, that generally doesn't come with a deadline. Yeah, um, it's been a couple of years. Um, it's funny. I was, n- I am not great by myself. Like once the room goes away and once the deadlines go away, I I can wander into the weeds mm-hmm. very quickly. Um, but I find like I'm in this interesting phase right now where I don't even have time to really sit down and find a totally original idea that isn't coming from IP or someone I pitched some like lately, ever since my amazing stories job ended in April, I've literally worked like 14 hour days trying to get everything done, like all the different things. So I think like there's this weird thing that starts happening when you start getting up a little bit, which is projects start coming to you and you, you take to them in some way. Like there's two right now specifically that um, I just saw myself in them Mm -hmm. and immediately I got it. I was like, and even though I didn't generate the idea, it felt like something that could come from me. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm pitching on it. I'm the one who's writing the, the pitch, the the show Bible, the pilot, whatever it is. It's and it feels a little bit like generating original material. Oh, absolutely! You know, that, that, that but totally counts because it's still you're doing the work. It's still, you but know, it is different. An emotional, you know, and it's work. like there's like maybe like two percent of distance between you and it because it didn't come from you, mm-hmm. um, and you always feel a little bit of shame. Really, I find it. I, I don't know why, but it's like yeah. I'm putting so much of myself in this, and I'm sort of declaring that it's mine. But it's, I feel also the need to say, but uh-huh. it was also this person's right. and but this person's you, with me. Do and you it, imagine, I don't know, I felt in adapting stuff or it just in talking to people about adapting stuff that like the a, a frequent point of view of the creator is I did the thing. Mm-hmm. I made the thing I wanted to make. And now if someone else gets to dig into it and find stuff that maybe I didn't know was there or embrace stuff that I didn't know was there, like that's exciting for a creator. Oh, totally. It's just, it's interesting because um, when I think about, you know, how I feel about the thing that like actually came from me and how I feel about the other things, I think I'll always feel just a tiniest sense that there might be someone out there who knows it better. Interesting. You know, even though it's my take on it, I think I will always see those projects as, you know, something that's a little bit more community property Mm -hmm. than the one that came for me, which someone else might have a wonderful take on that I would love to, to, you know, um, include in in the show or have it expand in some way I never would have imagined myself. But it's, it won't, it'll be 
just slightly not mine. I don't know. It's, it's interesting. But in some That's cases, like, 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 uh, like Kubrick, for instance, uh, everything he did intentionally started with some other source material. Right. Yeah. And there's some would, people. Yeah. He would take it way off the reservation. But yeah. I think in, in, in his case and some people's cases in, and, and I've grown to be more and more liking something that existed somewhere else first is that it almost, freeze you up instantly it gets it you past that first like yeah. is this any good because you're like okay here's an idea that's so true and it's like suddenly i can i can change that idea i can mm-hmm. go so many different ways but that idea at least started you yeah. yes mm-hmm. no and i, do I like totally the game agree of like what is what is the core of this thing what's the part i can't lose right but then anything beyond that i yeah. get to play with and right? it's kind but of interesting, interesting when you see yourself in something someone else someone else's sure. idea oh, yeah. you know where you're like oh my god that is totally me you know? <laughs> and when someone brings you something like i had that experience where uh someone i'm working with brought me something and he was like i think this might i think this might be good for you and we could do it together and i read it and i was like oh oh my god <laughs> like how well do you know me like uh, this is like exactly right for me right now and there's like an excitement in that too yeah. where something in the world yeah. you know spoke to you well and that's the excitement so. i think of why we all do this is we responded to stuff that we saw or read yeah. or you know yeah. listen to that like oh this this feels like me and someone else gets that there are other people out there that's like, very true yeah. and about staffing on television too oh, you know absolutely. it's like i saw something in my yeah i saw myself in that show and then yeah. i ended up going there and then that show would never have been that way if i hadn't been there that's really so cool. then like all of a sudden you know the pieces of you that made that what it is yeah. and it's it's kind of beautiful yeah all right we do need to wrap up we end as we always do by asking you what you are watching on television these days what's getting you excited or inspired what are you talking about with your rooms, your friends, your loved ones? Uh, and John, let's start with you. Uh, right now, the my two favorites are, uh, well, Barry was probably was my favorite show on TV, really. And then uh, I just, I'm um, uh, all the way through, we got one more tomorrow of Chernobyl. I think Chernobyl wow. is, uh, is... I'm scared is, to watch it. Yeah. But it's really masterful. And I think it, 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 gets me super excited on multiple levels. Mm-hmm. Number one, that that this was created by the guy who was did the hangover movies yeah. and all that. But, but it's amazing because I think I love the idea that people can be really good at comedy mm-hmm. and really good at intense drama and 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 beyond that, I think what truly excites me about it is is where the industry is right now because mm-hmm. I think that with Chernobyl, you have something that could never have been done at any other time than now. Because if this was made 20 years ago, it would be a feature film that they tried to cram it right. together yep. too much. Or it would have been a miniseries that was just not as good quality because sure. you didn't have – so now we have long-form storytelling – it makes me think if the if the Godfather was made today, it would be a five part HBO <laughs> miniseries. Right. Yep. And and so uh, and so yeah, Chernobyl <laughs> was was is just incredible writing, incredible directing. It's just incredible performance, top to bottom, and it is brutal but riveting. All right, fine. And, and, yeah, I'm really scared. really <laughs> worth watching. <laughs> All right, Bridget, what are you watching? Two completely different things that really say everything in the world about me. <laughs> uh, I just finished Fleabag season two, which made me want to jump off a building. 
because it was so good. And I was like, I will never be able to do anything that good. Um, and then, there, let me ask you this. Yes. Um, this came up in the last thing we were, the last interview we were doing because we talked a lot about Fleabag. And is there something in watching a show like that, which is just like top of its form? It's the person so. Yeah. Uh, like singular vision yeah singular vision absolutely is there something both inspiring about that as well as you know oh, jealousy inspiring? yes for sure and you know nothing is perfect so i mean i say that you know a little bit not completely meaning it right. but um i think personally just as you know from my own personal story i find it inspiring because that also is something that would never have existed yeah. any other time but now mm -hmm. and so when you look at these things and like, I mean, how different is Fleabag from Chernobyl? Right. There's room for anything. Absolutely. So I think on that level, yeah, it's definitely inspiring. Yeah. Uh, what's um, the other one? I just started watching Good Omens last night. How is it? Which is fun British genre. At right. its, yep. To me, it's, I mean, I, I understand why critics have been like, huh? You know, <laughs> oh. but it's campy. It's fun. I love Neil Gaiman. David Tennant is yeah, watching anything. And I think it's just, you know, not everything has to be like super profound and deep and, mm -hmm. you know. I, I think it's fun. If you like that kind of stuff, nice. you'll love it. That sounds great. Yep. What Speaking you of which, I just I have one episode of Good Omens left. I started it <laughs> oh, yesterday wow. and blazed through it. But it's one of my favorite books of all time. And so it's just being immersed in that book in that good way. And the casting is perfect and the tone perfect. is perfect and the humor is magnifique <laughs> i like it's i'm really really enjoying cool. it i've had that same experience of like five years ago they would have tried to cram all this into a two-hour movie right. or maybe maybe someone could have convinced them to do a two-part movie but <laughs> to get this it's just great it's great nice. uh and then because i do still watch network television uh my my weekly excitement right now is the hundred because mm -hmm. uh, oh. it is remains probably the craziest genre tv yes. on network happening it's just it's just nuts every week i'm like i don't i don't know okay this is i didn't see any of this coming you're i don't know for it. i don't know you're gonna get out of this sure great this is gonna That's be great funny. i know you are but this is great i love it nice all right all good rex thank you all for being here thank I you really appreciate thanks it. for this having me thanks forever dog this has been a forever dog production executive produced by dog. brett boehm joe cilio and alex ramsey for more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.